I will now turn it over to our speaker. Uh, thank you, Dan. My name is Brian O'Rourke, and I'm uh, glad you could all join us for fundamental construction law issues at each stage of the project. Um, we'll have a very uh, information-packed uh, webinar today. We're going to go through topics I would suggest at a pretty high level because we're covering a lot of topics. We have uh, five uh, speakers. Each you know, speaker's topic could probably cover a two-hour webinar on its own. So um, the way this will work is that one of our panelists will take a lead on each of the topics. Um, you can ask questions during the presentations, and then we will have time at the end of the webinar for further questions, and the panelists will stay on. Um, I, I know I can stay on a little bit later, and I'm sure some of us will stay on uh, to try to answer as many as we can. Uh, our time is precious because we, we just have a lot to cover. We are going to talk about project delivery systems. Uh, Ken Rubenstein of, of Freddie Flaherty. I'm gonna talk about negotiating and drafting design and construction agreements. Uh, Leah Rockwag, who is our real estate uh, committee chair at the BBA is gonna talk about assisting clients during construction. Um, Chris Sullivan of FTI Consulting is doing uh, preparing construction and design claims and responding to claims. And then uh, Gwen Weisenberg of Donovan Hayden is going to do um, alternative dispute resolution and dispute resolution um, in construction. So we really have a lot of information to cover. Um, and with that, I'm going to turn things over to Ken, um, who will start at the beginning of a project, project delivery systems. Thanks, Brian. Uh, going to go through here and request remote control. Sorry, I just need to set up so that I can make uh, move the slides forward as we go. Uh, appreciate everyone joining. So I'm trying to, to. I apologize. I'm. Oh, there we go. Uh, so the first step in any project that, that you get working on is going to be setting the project delivery method. What this really comes down to is there's different structures of projects. The usual constituents that you see on any construction project are the the owner. The owner hires an architect to design plans and specs and the contractor who builds according to those plans and specs. But there's a lot of different ways you can configure that and, there's, and the way that you configure it is gonna make all the difference in terms of the formal legal uh, relationships of the parties and also setting up what the relationships are gonna look like in terms of how adversarial and versus how collaborative they are. So the first concept that you need to understand, and this is as much, this is not specific to project delivery methods, but in construction law, the, the very fundamental concept is something called the Spearing Doctrine. And what the Spearing Doctrine says is that when an owner hires an architect to build plans and specs, and then hires a contractor separately to build in accordance with those plans and specs, the owner is essentially representing and warranting to the contractor that if they follow the instructions that they'll be able to build to build the project. So if there are any errors in the plans and specs and that causes a problem, the owner, at least vis-a-vis -vis the contractor, owns responsibility for the plans and specs. The owner may want to say, well, it's not my fault. I didn't design them. I didn't draft them. But typically, the owner's contract is with the architect and then a separate contract with the contractor. And the contractor doesn't have contractual privity with the architect. So if the owner is delayed, if the owner runs into additional costs because of problems in the plans and specs, the contractor makes their claim against the owner, 
the owner in turn has the ability to make their command, their claim against the architect. Um, that's the basic framework, and I always line up any discussion of project delivery methods by starting off with the Spearing Doctrine because the Spearing Doctrine does and doesn't apply in certain circumstances, and that whole concept of who is liable to who is really crucial as you're evaluating what delivery method to use. So we're going to talk about there are three most common project delivery methods. Uh, there that. I would say the vast majority of construction that people on this call are gonna be dealing with. The three methods are design, bid, build, CM at risk or construction manager at risk and design, build. And I've said those in order of least collaborative to most and we're gonna talk about those three. There's also something called uh, IPD or integrated project delivery. I'm gonna spend about two minutes at the very end talking about that because that really is a rarity. It's not all that common, but I'm just gonna flag it so that people know what the issues are. So design bid build is what we've all thought of construction and it's how construction has been done for the last 300 years. If you look at the, at the chart at the top right, you see that there's an owner, that's whose project it is. The owner hires a design professional, architect or engineer when we use that term design professional. Um, the owner hires, I'm gonna say architect, the architect puts together plans and specs and then gives them back to the owner and the owner uses that to hire a contractor. Sometimes the owner might go to a contractor, have their selected one and negotiate a contract based on those plans and specs. Sometimes the owner might put those plans and specs out on the market so that the, uh, so that the various competing contractors can bid to do the work and bid on a price and all do it on equal footing, knowing exactly what they'd be contracting to do. But either way, owner hires design professional, has a contract with them. Owner has a separate contract with the prime contractor. And then owner, uh, and then contractor hires subcontractors directly. So the benefits of this approach is that, the, is that the owner maintains tight control. They have contractual privity with both the design professional and the contractor. And so they have the right to kind of control. They have the right to see what they're willing to do, what they're not. They have the ability to be the, the primary point of contact and the primary point of responsibility. And likewise, the design professional and the prime contractor don't answer to each other. So you maintain tighter control. The way that it sets up is that if there are errors in the plans and specs, the prime contractor is gonna to go to the owner and is gonna ask for a change order. So it's almost a checks and balances. The prime contractor is the check on poor design. And if the contractor is asking for change orders that they're not entitled to, the design professional is usually advising the owner on whether or not to accept. And so they're the check on the contractor. You have independence, checks and balances. Uh, the downside of it is it's very adversarial. Those checks and balances create adversary. It's in the, if the uh, contractor wants to get more money, if they want to say that they're entitled to additional time or money because of, then they can say there are errors in the plans and specs. And now to get that change order, they're throwing a rock at the design professional and they're blaming the design professional who in turn might get defensive and say, no, my design is fine. The contractor's just trying to get more money. So it creates a very adversarial system, but I would tell you it's the process that's been in place for hundreds and hundreds of years. It's what the vast majority of construction still looks like. 
Ken, are there any um, uh, owners that you might say you're, you know, you're well suited if you're advising an owner that the design bid uh, build uh, project delivery method, you know, that's a good project method for you. You might want to strongly consider it. That's a great point, Brian. So um, the projects that would be best for design bid build are typically simple projects. Um, they're projects where you don't have that much complexity to it where you do also, it's also projects where you don't need that much customization because customization, the reason why that becomes a factor is you're signing a contract at the outset for a particular building. You've got the plans, you've got the specs, the contractor prices are based on that. And uh, if you want to change, if you want to do something different as the project goes on, the design is already fully formed. The contractor has already bought out their subs and, and brought on their subs. So you're going to get a change order and you'll have design fees and you'll have construction fees. It's hard to make changes on a design build, bid build project. Another thing is a great, a good thing is there's a high degree of transparency. If you want to do a competitive bid, then you can, you can do that with design bid build because everybody is bidding apples to apples. Um, so it's very good if you're in an industry, for example, government construction, where it's always important to be able to show that there wasn't fraud going on, there wasn't uh, grift, that nobody, it's not just the governor giving it to their, their cousin, uh, where you need a high degree of transparency and a real appearance of, of competitive bidding, design bid build is extremely useful for that. Now, by doing that, by having everything decided up front and having everything determined before you get started, you lose out on certain things. So as I mentioned, you lose out on the ability to customize because your design is already fully formed. The contractors are already fully on board. You lose out on collaboration because the architect and the contractor literally have to some degree opposite uh, objectives and one success can impact the other one and one uh, side can decide that you know, if the contractor wants to make a claim for additional money, he almost automatically has to throw a rock at the architect. And if the architect wants the job to come in within, within budget, he almost has to root against the contractor. It's not always as callous as that, but the relationship can denigrate pretty quickly. So the next type of construction we're gonna talk about is construction management at risk or, no, or CM at risk. CM at risk is a bit more, is a lot more collaborative than design bid build. For CM at risk project, you'll see if you look at the, at the graphic I have in the lower left, it's almost identical to the graphic I had up before with contract, with design bid build. You still have a con an owner. The owner still has a separate contract with the designer and with the contractor. And then the contractor still goes out and hires its own subs. But a crucial difference is whereas in design bid build, the owner hires the design professional and the plans get finished and completed before the construction before the contractor's hired. In CM at risk projects, the owner will hire the design professional and often hire the construction manager at the same time with the idea that the construction manager is gonna help with the planning. They're gonna help the design professional. And the reason why they're well suited to do that is while the design professional has a lot of experience with construction and has a lot of experience in terms of designing and understand how these things are built, they don't have near the amount of data that the construction managers do. With the contract, construction managers are typically 
construction firms. They're the same people that are contractors in design, bid, build. But they have tremendous experience because they've been building these. They're the ones who take on these commitments. So they can provide what's called design assist services to the design professional, often giving advice on constructability, things like scheduling, things like procurement of materials, things like sequencing. Um, they can make a more usable design. Now, because you're bringing them on at an earlier stage of the process, you can often get going before the entire design is complete or before you have all of the details. So they can be working while the final details of the design are being worked out. That offers a lot of ability to customize. If the owner gets in and decides that, you know what, we'd like to do, uh, we'd like to move the, the operating room in the hospital from over here to over here, we'd like to have the nursing station be a little bit bigger or be a little bit different, configured in a different way. Often because the contractor or the construction manager is working and in the project, but hasn't needed to make all of the commitments and hasn't planned everything out because they know that his design is still being completed. Uh, they have the flexibility and that can be done with less additional costs. So you get greater customization. Now, in order to have this flexibility, we have to have well, what CM at risk projects are typically done is you don't have a firm fixed price. You have a guaranteed maximum price. The construction manager will provide a GMP, a guaranteed maximum price, and will bill on a cost plus basis up to that GMP. If the owner makes substantive changes that can be done without any cost impact, then no change order needs to issue and the construction manager just continues on and does that work. If, and can you, I just quick question, when does, yeah. when does the owner get its GMP uh, when it knows its maximum amount? When, when, at what stage in the project usually would you think that an owner would find out that they're gonna get the guaranteed maximum price? So typically what would happen in these is that the owner would hire the designer. They'd have a, a conceptual sketch or conceptual drawings of what they're gonna do. And they'd have a budget or an estimate of what, they're, what they're, the designer is supposed to be designing to. You Typically the CM, the construction manager would sign a phase one contract and then phase two is gonna be the actual construction work. So phase one is for design assist. And when the design gets to a certain level, because you can't even come up with the guaranteed maximum price until some level of design is done. And you know, as you get into construction law, you'll learn there's different levels of documentation. There are, uh, there are conceptual drawings, there are design drawings, there are construction drawings. Usually when you get into the design drawing stage is when you get the GMP gets worked out. And what will happen is the, con the contractor or the construction manager will sign a GMP amendment, which establishes what that GMP is. And often that's also where they, where they have the substantial completion deadline is fixed, and then you're off to the races. Then you essentially have your construction contract. Everybody has their defined responsibilities. So as you're doing this, again, the, the construction manager will be working to provide consulting services, to provide maybe a little bit of preliminary lining up of trades and lining up of their subcontractors. But once we get that uh, to that GMP, now we have a, a contract, we have, usually it's still not a completed spec, not a completed design. It might be at 75, the design may be 75% complete. And so one of the advantages of, the, of doing it on a cost plus with a GMP basis is if there's a way to do it cheaper, 
then the owner gets the benefit of those savings. You can negotiate shared savings. I've seen sometimes it's 50-50 or 80-20 in one direction or the other. But the owner knows that if they can find ways of doing cost savings, if they can find value engineering and ways to make this project more efficient, then the owner can save money. Or if they can find ways of doing it more effective, then they have the flexibility within the budget. Um, from a collaboration standpoint, you still have the checks and balances. You still have the, the construction managers going to look for a change order if they end up getting, uh, if they end up running into errors and omissions in the plans and specs. And the design professional may still not want rocks thrown at their design. So there is still room for it. But what you tend to find is where we have that design assist component at the beginning and the contractor's providing more input. Now, they're not providing the design, nor are they guaranteeing the design. The design responsibility still stays with the design professional. But it's often you see a lot, it's harder to hate somebody up close. And where the contractor has been working with the architect to design, to help with the design and to make this work seamlessly, and relationships are formed and people feel like they've had input and buy-in, you see less conflict. You see where there are, where there are ambiguities, the contractor calls up the architect and says, what's your intent, as opposed to just submitting a change order. So you still see a lot less, you see a lot less conflict. Now, um, because can you, the... Can oh, I just, sorry to interrupt. Can you, you talked about design assist. Sometimes you hear people talk about a concept they call value engineering. Does that work on a CM at risk uh, type project? It does. So often value engineering, I've heard skeptics will say it offers neither value nor engineering. But value engineering is the term of when you have plans and specs, when you have a design for the project, where the parties come together and they try and find ways to do it cheaper, faster, or better. And, and CM at risk really allows that, allows for that because the construction manager can come in and say, yeah, we can do it cheaper if we resequence this over here, or if we use this material that you spec, instead of using that, we use this. And the contract structure, which is cost plus with the guaranteed maximum price, is really built for that. It, it readily accepts those cost savings and you don't have to do change orders to, to reflect that, but it allows the contractor to try and save the money, save the owner money, and find ways to do things cheaper or better. And your slide mentioned something about fast tracking and phase scheduling. Can you go into a little bit of detail as to what fast track is? Sure. So fast track is really uh, where you're collapsing the schedule. If you picture a, a linear chart where, so this is the design phase, and then if it were, were design bid build, all of the design, I'm trying to make my hand parallel to uh, level, so as if it's a, a bar on a, a bar chart you would complete all of the design work, and then only after all of the design work, then the construction would commence. So one cannot begin until the other has, is complete. With CM at risk, because the design, because the contractor is gonna get working, the construction manager is gonna get working before the design's complete, here you have the design phase, you can collapse them and you can be doing the construction while the design is still going. So that allows for fast tracking. The project can be done more, more quickly because the design and construction can be, the construction can start before the design is complete. So that means that there can be separate packages for various aspects of the design and construction. For example, there could be a foundation package or there could be a framing package or something like that. 
Exactly. So yeah, under traditional design bid build scenario, because you're setting a firm fixed price or you're getting bids from separate contractors based on, uh, based on your design, you don't go out to bid or you don't contract with the contractor until everything's done from the, from the, the foundation to the paint selection. You, all of that is generally done before you, come, you contract. But in a CM at risk situation, as Gwen mentioned, you can have the, if you've got the foundation package done and you know basically what the structure is going to look like, you can get the foundation subcontractor going before you figure out and fine tune what the electrical design is going to be. And so that saves you a lot of time. You know, if, you, if it takes you another month and a half to finish the design, but you've used that month to build the foundation, you've shaved a month of time off of your, off of your total project schedule. Is there a greater risk with respect to uh, design or redesign with respect to fast tracking and packages? Now, anytime, there, there's always the possibility, but I would say generally, uh, the only way you're gonna run into the problem of redesign is if the later package impacts or implicates the earlier work. So for example, if you do the foundation package, and then when you put together the framing, you realize the building's gonna need a slightly different footprint, or you do the framing and then you realize when you're doing the electrical that we're gonna need more space. But typically, because you're already at 75% complete or, or, or sometimes more, sometimes less, but you're already pretty far along the scale by the time you're putting things out to the subs, you tend not to see it, in my experience, you tend not to see those problems happening all that often. Now, if we were to shift gears and we were to talk about prefabrication, uh, I don't want to go too far off on a tangent, but prefabrications where you design things with repetitive elements and you make all of them and then you ship them to the site and you put them together like Legos, there it, it's great, it can cause great real cost savings, but if there's any mistake, if there's any nonconformity, if there's anything that doesn't fit, then you've got to try and, you, if you have a mistake in one, you have a mistake in all and it can just destroy your project. Ken, we have a question from a participant. Does the owner allow for the design professional or the construction manager to have rights in each other's contract as a third party, given that they're working collaboratively to develop design or are they still wholly separate and not in privity with one another? So there's a two part answer. So generally speaking, they're wholly separate and not in privity with each other, but it does depend on what contract you're, you're using. Um, Gwen, who does a lot of architect engineer work, may get mad at me because I do a lot of contractor work. But one of the things, if you're using the AIA documents, the American Institute of Architects documents, those are the standard form. They're used in, I would say, the, the majority of commercial projects that you'll run into. They're very favorable to the architect. Um, they're written by the American Institute of Architects, and they're written from that perspective. Now, other people have buy-in and input into what those documents should look like. There's a committee, usually uh, constituents from all areas, including lawyers, put it together. But in the CM contract and in the design bid build contract, they refer to something called the A102, which is the general conditions. And the general conditions allow the architect to enforce the provisions of the construction contract. It does not give the same right to the CM with regard to the architect's contract. I will tell you that when I'm editing a contract for the, for the contractor, that's one of the first clauses I strike uh, because I only have rights against the owner. So the owner is the only one who should have rights against me. I, I generally feel like the architect shouldn't have rights against me. 
uh, if I don't have it back against them. I think that's good. So the last, uh, the next area I wanna talk about, and I'm running low on time, is design, bid, build. Design, bid, build is where the owner hires one entity, the design builder. And that design builder is going to be their single point of contact for both design and construction. The benefit of it is, is that the owner only has to deal with one person. You don't have those situations where a contractor comes in for a change order and says, it's due to an error in the plans and specs, and the architect says, no, it's the contractors try, should have known or they could reasonably infer the plans and specs are fine, and the owner is left with this, and the owner who had hired these two professionals to help guide them through the project doesn't know which one to trust. Owners hate that. That's a major risk that owners try to avoid. With design, with design build, you avoid that because the contractor's not going to say it was the designer's fault because the contractor is responsible for the design. Likewise, the designer is not gonna say that the contractor is trying to take advantage of you because they're the same entity. What owners need to be aware of is the fact that the contractor and the architect are the same entity means you don't have those checks and balances. So instead of the contractor and the architect look going like this, they go like this. And there's a risk that the contractor will, uh, will the design builder will run roughshod over the owner. To do a design build project, you typically, the owner hires, a, uh, hires some professional, whether it's a, an architect or the design builder or usually an, often an outside consultant to put together what are called basis of design documents. And the basis of design will give very specific, very easily identifiable requirements. Um, if it's a hotel, it would be there are 642 hotel rooms. Each of the rooms should have this configuration. Each of the rooms should have this level of finish. It should be these fixtures, but it won't define how the electrical is put together. It won't define how the plumbing is set up. It will give the requisites and the requirements, and then it's up to the design builder to figure out how to do it. You, you, you typically use, uh, I mentioned to, with design bid build, you'd use it for government buildings, you'd use it for simple projects. CM at risk, you'd use for projects that require a lot of customization. Uh, a lot of specificity where you, where the owner, a hospital um, would be one, you, things where the owner is going to want high-end residential, things where the owner needs a lot of customization and needs their contractor working collaboratively with the architect. Design build can be really fast because the designer and the builder are in the same entity and they don't need 75% complete drawings. They know what's coming, generally speaking, down the pike because they're going to be the ones putting it together. And so you can get the, you can, as soon as you finish the, the excavation and, and the foundation design, you get that out and that's on the street and you can start that work even before you have the frame design. It can be much faster. You can have much more overlap. But as the owner, you are only getting whatever is in your basis of design. So if you don't have it, you should assume you're not getting it. And the best example of that I heard is there was a women's prison built and the, the state put the job out on a design build basis to a very well-known contractor that I think some people on this call represent. Um, the contractor, the contractor did it on a design build basis. And when they walked through with the state, the state said, this is beautiful. This is great. They're walking through the hallway. It's lovely. Then they get to the stairway and the stairway has exposed cinder block. And they get to the second floor hallway and the second floor hallway has exposed cinder block. And they say, well, what's going on here? We, in the offices, it was beautiful, but now we move to this section and it's, it's sparse, it looks terrible. And the design builder said, 
It wasn't in the basis of design. It was not in our requirements. So we didn't carry that money in the bid. And if we had, if we had carried that money, we wouldn't have been the low bidder, but it wasn't a requirement. So we didn't carry it. Nobody else likely carried it. So you don't get it. If it's not expressly spelled out, you're not going to get it. So the, the types of projects you use design build on are ones where you can have easily identifiable acceptance criteria. Prisons are a good one. Hotels, because they're just repl replicable blocks. Um, dormitories, you'd use it. You would not use it for a museum. Museum, you want very customized, very specialized. For that, you'd use CM at risk. Um, you don't use it for highly complex projects, but if you need to save time, design build is often the fastest delivery method you can find. So um, with respect to uh, the design perspective, uh, we see a tremendous amount of design build, particularly in infrastructure projects, bridges, roadways, tunnels, um, that, that type of project. Um, there are some benefits to the owners uh, as well. Uh, once you have identified design build as your delivery method, the design builder, which in, in our experience is generally the contractor, not the designer, uh, the contractor then has to provide a GMP uh, to the owner and the owner uh, locks in that GMP. So any costs beyond the GMP uh, are the responsibility of the design builder. Uh, and as I said, in, in our experience, that's going to be the contractor who then retains a designer. Uh, the designer uh, pre-bid uh, presents a, a design that's usually somewhere between 20 and 30% of a design. And that's what is uh, contained within the bid. There's uh, an anticipation by all parties, at least on the design build side, that there's going to be significant design development as the project progresses. So um, again, from the design professional side, I would say at this point, probably 60% of my claims are design build uh, delivery method claims. And the majority of those claims against the designers are quantity claims uh, that came, that, that reference or pertain to the initial, um, the initial design uh, pre-bid. So um, the problem with that is because there is a GMP, uh, the design builder can't go up with its claims and allege betterment or additional costs because there's a basis of design and a GMP based on that, as Ken mentioned. The only place that the design builder can go with its claims is down to the design professionals for cost overruns and delays. Uh, and the allegations that we see most readily are those that we underestimated uh, the, uh, the design and the quantities associated with the design pre-bid. So that, that's, it's, it's a particular issue uh, for designers with respect to a, a design build uh, delivery method. Design build is very hard to do in a, in a competitive bidding scenario because typically in competitive bidding, you like to have more of the construction or more of the design done so that everybody can be doing apples to apples. But if you're doing a design build, you need to do, if you're a bidder, you need to do some of the design in order to get to a level where you can start bidding a competitive price and then you lose some of the efficiency and you have the problem that the contractor relied on the design that the designer did who wasn't expecting to put together a full and complete design. Uh, so it, it, for in, in competitive bid design build, it's happening more and more. It's becoming more and more common and it's a real 
Um, a lot of people don't know how to do it correctly, and it's, I think the industry is still figuring it out. Yeah, and the, the big issue for designers is that the first thing to go in the competitive uh, pricing is the contingency. And that's what the designers are relying upon for design development as the project progresses. So it, it, it's, it tends to be a, a significant issue, but as Ken mentioned, it's being used more and more frequently, especially by municipalities who are looking at this as a, a way to contain their costs through a GMP. Uh, so it's, we're seeing a lot of it, um, but it, it is a problem for design professionals. So I see I have already gone over my time, so I'm going to skip over the, the last slide, which is, uh, uh, which is integrated project delivery, just to say it's a, it's a rarely used system. The owner, contractor, and designer all sign one contract where they agree that if it comes in uh, overbid, owner still pays costs. But if it comes in late or overbid, the design professional and the contractor usually put their profit at risk. Um, it's used in less than 5%, probably less than 1% of the construction that's going on in Massachusetts. So know that it's out there. Know that it's not common. It's typically used in hospital projects. But uh, I'm going to skip over it because, again, I've already gone over my time. I'm trying to get to the next slide. Again, we talked about the different types of payment structures that work with these. It can be lump sum. Uh, usually design bid build is often lump sum. The other, the other ones are very frequently cost plus with a GMP. So hi, uh, I'll see. I'm, I've got the next section. My name is Brian O'Rourke. Um, I'm a partner at Verrill Dana, a construction lawyer. In my first life, I was a civil engineer. Uh, so I still keep my PE, but I can tell you at this point in my life, I wouldn't be designing anything um, and uh, work on this. I'm going to be talking about negotiating and drafting, designing construction agreements. And um, I'm going to start out with, uh, you know, advice. Um, you know, this is a fundamentals class. Um, my recommendation is start out with a standard form agreement um, in both design and construction. Design and construction are sophisticated, complex um, industries, um, and they're very. And when you start looking at the forms and you see the amount of forms that are out there, you'll see that there's a lot of uh, different ways, as we just did. Projects can be delivered and projects can be built. Uh, starting from scratch is not uh, is not the way somebody particularly who's you know taking a fundamentals class would I would recommend. There are standard forms. Um, the most common ones that uh, I would I know out there are the AIA, which I'm going to talk a lot about uh, today. EJCDC, uh, the consensus docs, which come from a different organization from AIA, and Ken kind of uh, talked about a little bit of the history. The the backers, the primary industry backer behind the consensus doc would be the uh, AGC and the Associated General Contractors. And then FIDIC, um, which is an international organization. I've got a slide on that. And you are going to see, um, as you practice in construction law, inst institutional owner agreements from both uh, public and private entities. And that's their own on-the-shelf uh, agreements. And they're usually developed over a period of time in, in years. And some larger contractors might have their own institutional construction or subcontract agreements as well and we're going to talk briefly about them but again there's a lot to cover here 
and I'm going to try to do it from a high level. But if you take anything from the presentation is that um, you don't draft your own, you know, starting from scratch construction agreement. The industry form agreements are there. Um, look at them. AIA is the American Institute of uh, Architects. It's very common in the U.S., particularly for building projects. They'll give statistics about the amount that they use. They still are the largest form construction agreement out there, uh, despite um, the competition is coming up from some other areas. Uh, they've been around since 1888, so you've got, whatever, 130 plus years of history on these agreements. You know, there's actually in Westlaw a case citer, citator that you can look at how certain provisions have been interpreted by different courts around there. So you have a sense of predictability of these contract forms with, with this standard language. Um, uh, form agreements are regularly uh, renewed. AIA has over 200 former agreements. The software is a little controversial on AIA. It's, it's come through, I think it's improving. It's now, you, when you're gonna use an AIA uh, uh, software system, it's on the cloud and it does come into Microsoft Word. And I do, and I think everybody in this call who negotiates and drafts contracts, and we all do, uh, will edit those contracts in a Word version and then, and then import them back onto the AIA cloud where they, where they get produced. Uh, the next slab, general conditions. General conditions are a, a part of uh, somewhat unique, I think at least uh, they're very common in construction and design agreements. And general conditions are, what are the general conditions of a contract? They're the backbone document. Um, contract, construction contracts from many agencies do split um, the form agreement and the so-called general agreement. That what's in the general agreement, oftentimes the role of the parties, conditions with respect to time, price, payments, changes, uh, suspension and termination, the claims and disputes. There's a lot of the uh, important contractual forms would be in this separate document, which is included in the contract documents um, for general conditions. The B101 is your standard owner architect agreement. Um, I've used the B101 for owner en engineering agreements uh, as well, um, where the project is an owner lead. Um, the A101 is the owner general contractor agreement, common. Uh, there's an A105 for smaller projects. And then the A133 owner construction management uh, contract. Ken talked a lot about um, CM at risk in his presentation as a project delivery system. You know, we're a BBA presentation. My experience is that CM at risk is the most common in the Boston market uh, project delivery system. So being familiar with A133 um, is worthwhile. But all three of those documents, B101, A, uh, A101 and A133 all incorporate the general conditions within the same, within the same contract form. So that they would all be part um, part of the document. Just to the next slide down. It's not going. There we go. Uh, EJCDC, the Engineers Joint um, uh, Contract Documents Committee, more common on heavy infrastructure, heavy civil type projects, roads, dams, bridges, um, you know, high, highways. Um, uh, large or engineering organizations are involved with them. Um, Leigh and I are involved with ASCE, um, um, and they are, uh, there's a typo in there. 
um, that, but they'll be involved with the EJCD documents and upgrading those from the engineering perspective. Uh, you may see some public agencies use them as kind of the backbone for their project delivery. I've seen that in other states besides Massachusetts more common, uh, commonly, and there's a whole family of documents within this, um, within this uh, uh, provision as well. Uh, FIDIC International, it's, uh, I've had a couple instances in my career to do it. It is fun when you get that. I've seen the FIDIC documents in the Middle East in particular, um, but a similar international standard um, of construction documents, a form agreement. Um, you know, recognizing a recommended use a form agreement um, to, as a basis point, but also kind of consider what is your what is your uh, project? Are you building something in the Middle East? You know, maybe the parties in that area are going to be more familiar with fitting. Are you building a uh, building, the AIA? Are you doing a heavy project? Maybe we should be looking at the engineers uh, joint conference, but so organizations and then, um, you know, the next one, which I'll touch. Um, oh, I did. I skip over consensus docs. It's worth. I Sorry, I skipped that slide. Uh, consensus docs. Um, this is one you may want to consider about who you uh, who you represent. If you're on the uh, contractor side, most parties and you're doing a, a contractor owner agreement, the, the provisions in the consensus doc would generally be seen to be slightly more favorable um, to the uh, contractor with maybe more of a understanding of the contractor's risks. With the AIA, um, you know, AGC kind of, they had their own family of documents, but frankly, it, was, uh, it wasn't used very much. And, um, and the AIA existed kind of as the sole player in the field. Um, I don't know, maybe 15 years ago, I might be dating myself, but in that time frame, uh, the consensus docs came into, into uh, existence. There is a large amount of organizations that back the consensus docs, but the lead and difference would be from the contractor side. So, if, you know, again, recognizing who you represent in a negotiation, um, consensus docs may be deemed to be more cognizant of contractor issues than the AIA. It has a large family of documents. Um, you could run a whole seminar on comparing AIA and consensus docs, but again, many lawyers are involved with those. The rules of thumb are if you're, if you're on an owner side and you're seeing a consensus doc, you know, maybe look at the AIA and see what the, what the AIA is saying about it and why, and is that important to your client? Um, uh, about what would be different and, and why the difference is in the, in the consensus doc um, and to think about, them. again, FIDIC I covered. Uh, institutional projects, many large owners have their own design and construction um, form agreements. Expect these to be friendly to the party who drafted the agreement in the form agreement. Um, is there any room for negotiation on a form agreement? Public projects, many of you know, if you do public work, you're not going to have room for negotiation on that form agreement. And the chances are it's going to be not favorable to your client, the contractor. And if you're a designer, not favorable to your client, the designer. I, I did work as a design consultant. Um, and I know that Gwen represents the firm that I uh, worked for many, many years ago. And I know they would sign agreements for public agencies. I remember talking to my boss and saying, listen, we would never sign this with a private party, but the public agency does not have a history of bringing claims against us. 
and frankly, we don't have room to negotiate on it, and, and it's what we get from a, from a public entity. Um, you know, that was a long time ago. I don't know whether, what their practice is today, um, but, you know, recognize you're going to get form agreements from public entities, and due to bidding rules, you may not have uh, any room to negotiate them. Um, how specific is the form agreement? I do have large owner clients that are big corporations that come into Massachusetts and their form agreement may not agree with Massachusetts law. You know, we do have some uh, special laws in here that apply to private construction contracts. You know, the big ones to keep in mind of, and I, and I won't go into great detail on this, is we have a Retainage Act, we have a Prompt Payment Act, um, you know, there are rules I'll talk about indemnity later, um, about indemnity and limitations on indemnity under Massachusetts that affect private contract, um, private contracts. Um, but you should be, uh, you should be aware of those when you're dealing with these form agreements and recognize, um, when you're doing it, um, the dynamics of the contract and party negotiation, um, is there, you know, what, what leverage does your client have during the great recession, um, uh, you know, those of us working in there recognized if you had an owner contract, um, they had so much competition for their work. Um, they did not have to give on many points on their contracts to get out because, frankly, there were lots of good players out there looking for work and looking for going. The last few years, pre-pandemic, and let's hope they get back, uh, the leverage had changed somewhat because the marketplace was in really good shape. There was a lot of work going on. And many contractors that would agree to something five, six years, you know, coming out of the recession would not agree to, to that. So when you're, when you're recognizing and looking at your contracts, you know, what is the dynamic of the marketplace and where is the risk? And, you know, explain to your client when you're going through these provisions, you know, you're, they're asking you to take a provision which increases your risk. You can make a business decision. Um, standard of care and design agreements. Yep. Before you skip on down, there's another um, category of, of contracts that we're seeing very frequently. And I do a lot of contract reviews. Sure. We're seeing a lot of proprietary contracts that are not form contracts uh, and they're not AIA or consensus or EJCBC. We're seeing a lot of, uh, a lot of companies, a lot of owners creating sure. their own forms. So that's just another, another category that, that um, you, you know, the audience may end up coming across as they're um, starting their practices. Sure, and I, I would, I call those institutional agreements and that's probably, I maybe should have been a little bit more clear, you know, inst and I call them institutional projects. Really those are institutional agreements and like you, Gwen, where I find those come up, particularly larger uh, owner entities that do a lot of work and that are building all around the world. And one of the things I note when I have those clients is that um, they have provisions that don't always agree with Massachusetts law. Um, and, it, and it's sometimes uh, educating your client if you're on the owner side or being opposite them, you really need to, um, you need to say, no, that's great that this is the company policy to do this. And like you said, they're very favorable to the owner usually. And, and you know, if we have that leverage, great, if I'm on the owner side. But if they don't comply with Mass law and, you know, Massachusetts lien law, Massachusetts, you know, Tana Jack, Pompey, um, I, I, I recommend my, my clients um, uh, update them. And so, but I agree with you, those are, are there, and I find bigger organizations have those. Yeah, 
Yeah. yeah. One of the other things that we're seeing uh, a lot from the design professional side is the contracts that my clients are getting are contractor contracts. Uh, so they're not uh, geared at all to design professionals. And so yeah. when I'm reviewing and editing these contracts, um, in large part, I'm, I'm rewriting them to some extent uh, so that they actually apply to standard of care and other aspects of a construction project that would apply to a designer as opposed to a contractor. And, and I, that feeds right into the next slide, which is standard of care in design contracts. You know, what is standard of care? And there is a fundamental difference between a design contract and a construction contract and that a construction contract a contractor is warranting um, its finished product whereas a design contract you're buying professional services designers like lawyers provide professional services and a standard of care provision the you know the first slide i put in uh, in considering your designer contracts is important um, in massachusetts if you have a design contract and it doesn't have a standard of care under the Klein v. Catalano case, the standard of care is implied and it's an ordinary standard of care of design professionals in the same, of sim same or similar circumstances. Standard of care to me is important, representing owners sometimes, in that you can mention the example of a, uh, of a, of a, ho of a, a hospital. If I'm hiring a designer to provide a, a design to a hospital, um, you know, A, you know, if you're on the owner side, you want to get the most favorable to yourself. But I used to, and I don't anymore, and I'll explain why, I would say things like, I want a designer who is a specialist in hospital design. And the reason being um, is that, you know, I... Uh, the design field is just diverse, just like lawyers, and you don't want... Um, and you don't want to hire somebody who is not uh, experienced in your particular area. But there can be issues about saying, I want a specialist. Um, and I've had pushback from designer represented counsel that that will void my insurance. Um, you know, some things I may consider now is that I, I think um, a, a designer having substantial uh, experience in this project area I've been told uh, will not um, um, uh, is is not, not there. So I'm going to uh, I'm, I'm I'm pointing out I'm I'm kind of going on slide. I'm going to kind of speed things up because um, I have a number of slides left. Um, uh, so what should be in it? What should be the scope of work in a design agreement? Um, a, a design agreement should include. Uh, I, this is an area where I think both parties benefit from detail. The design, the designer uh, owner wants to know what it's getting paid for. The designer wants to know what its scope is. So here's one where including a lot of detail in in a scope agreement kind of benefits both people. Schedule: What does each party ask for and why? Time of the essence provisions in a design contract. I have owner clients that insist on them, and Gwen pointed out that uh, designers don't like to give a warranty or can't give a warranty. Um, in a construction contract. I think you can, you know, what does time to the essence mean in construction? It basically means timely performance is a material provision of your contract. Very important in construction. Many owners want them in design as well. Um, I would take the position from the owner's side that, you know, when you deliver your, your professional services, 
doesn't change you into a warranty. It's just giving a time frame, and that the skill and warranties are still geared to the, the time. But I have pushed back that time of the essence is a warranty type provision and not um, acceptable in a designer agreement. Yeah, um, just real quickly to that point, what I do in, in contracts when I see a time is, is of the essence provision is I'll strike that and I'll put in something to the effect that the designer will perform as expeditiously as is consistent with the professional skill and care and orderly progress of the work. Yeah, I, I, and I've got that pushback and it, and it goes to owners, some owners I've worked with, um, and it goes to the business decision of clients. I have one owner in particular that, that doesn't agree to that and the designers and he's a, his owner is a huge provider of services and the designers simply, they make the business decision on the risk on that. But I, I, I that is very common negotiation issue. Insurance um, uh, should be included. It's in the AIA. I think design professional insurance right now is, is required. Limitations of liability. How much you're going to limit liability? Many designers only want to limit their liability to their fee, or to uh, you know the fee on this project that um, that they can't go beyond what the uh, costs on. Uh, you know, if you are, do have insurance, um, sometimes I will try to do the, the limits of your insurance plus your fee. You know, those are negotiation bit, bits, but you should assume that uh, most. Uh, savvy designers now are looking to limit their liability on their projects. Their fees uh, don't uh, often rise to the amount of damages, particularly Gwen mentioned in that design build realm. Some of those, I've seen some of those claims in those design build projects that way exceed. The idea of consequential damages, I'm going to come back to in a little more depth of, um, of in contract, but the idea of a designer agreeing to consequential damages is very problematic. Um, and, and there's and their uh, AIA waives consequential damages of both parties in the agreement. Um, what are the roles of the parties in different in different stages of the project? And what is a basic service and what's an additional service? Basic services, what are you going to do your work for on the flat fee? An additional service is, oh, you've asked me to do this extra work. I'll do this extra work, um, but I want to get paid more. Um, Key issues in the project delivery, project delivery methods, um, defining the contract documents, what's the order of precedences, should the contractor's proposal be included as a contract document. My general recommendation from an owner's side is I don't want the contractor's proposal as a contract document. It usually includes all kinds of uh, limitations in that and, in, in, you know, kind of change, change, change order setups. Um, so what I generally try to do is say, well, if you want that, let's put it into the contract body itself and make sure my client is educated about what the risks of putting those and including a contractor's proposal in the contract documents is. Uh, you should include a date of commencement, a date of substantial completion. Note on larger projects in Massachusetts, substantial completion is defined by statute. Substantial completion is ordinarily the date when the project can be used for its intended purpose. And you can have partial substantial completion of portions of the project. You can do it by a hard date in the agreement, or you can do it the number of work days um, that are gonna come out, and then date of final completion. When a project is substantially complete, it can be occupied. Construction is a very, uh, uh, is a very uh, complex project. There can be lots of little details that need to be done on what's called a punch list. 
and doing that and specifying how long uh, the date of substantial completion and final completion are important. Substantial completion is important because many times warranties um, begin on the date of substantial completion. A changes clause, I recommend, and the form agreements have a change clause in it. It gives the owner a right to require changes to a contract. It also gives the contractor the right to get paid when the owner asked it to do so. And it also gives most of the standard forms will give contractors the right to request changes for change conditions, and owner's changes, and other things. Uh, damages, again, are you going to have a limitation of damages in your in your um, in your provision and consequential damages. I mentioned it briefly in the um, in the designer. The idea of consequential damages, the American Institute of Architect and Consensus Stock both include a mutual waiver, uh, waiver of consequential damages. And an easy way to explain it is where it arose from from a case involved. A, there was a case in the 80s involving a casino in New Jersey. Uh, Perini happened to be the construction manager on it. It had a construction management fee on the order of a quarter million dollars, I believe, small dollars in that order. Uh, the project actually opened on time, but it didn't have an ornamental waterfall that one of those fancy casinos would have. Um, the casino claimed that that lack of finish caused it, cost it a lot of business, that gamblers didn't come in to a half-finished uh, facility and they lost $15 million. Um, and that wasn't, you know, $15 million to finish the project. That was $15 million in lost revenue due to gamblers not coming to the casino. A consequential damage. And that um, case went forward and the contractor actually uh, was held liable for the $15 million in that. And most of the industry recognized the risk reward wasn't there. And so now most standard forms include a waiver of so-called consequential damages. Liquidated damages. Again, trying to move quickly, time of performance. If you perform late, it will have a daily cost in doing liquidated damages. And under Massachusetts law, liquidated damages cannot be a penalty. So if you're advising an owner in, in, in coming up with liquidated damages, it has to be a reasonably foreseeable cost um, of what you expect your damages to be. It may not easy, always be easy to calculate, and you might look for guidance but you don't want a penalty clause because it won't be enforceable under Massachusetts law. Uh, time of the essence, I mentioned that earlier, it means a failure to timely uh, perform is a material breach of the contract. And the common law is different than that. Most standard form agreements now recognize that time of the essence is a standard construction agreement. Type of time delays, you could have owner caused delays, you could have contractor caused delays, and you can have delays arising from uh, un um, unforeseen conditions or storms or third things, and how those are compensated. Usually you can count on all the above, um, except for contractor caused uh, delays, giving a time extension. Contractor delays, caused delays, contractors responsible for bringing up the time and for um, the cost. The others often you'll see when I look at no damage for delay provisions. Uh, important thing to remember in Massachusetts law is that generally enforceable a lot of risk for contractors. If you're representing a contractor or subcontractor, you're being asked to um, sign a no damage for delay provision. Be wary of the risk. There's a lot of risk in 
no damage for delayed provisions. They're really not a fair provision, but they do exist. They are enforceable in Massachusetts, um, unless a very, a very, uh, very few cases with exceptions to that. Our progress payments uh, will be spelled out how frequently the contract is going to get paid. There's a statute in Massachusetts that also has a time period more than $3 million, your contract is going to be subject to it. Indemnity provisions, important. Um, recognize indemnity as, you know, a risk sharing. If something occurs, I will pay the damage. Most common in construction, and I think a reasonable provision, is to ask a contractor to indemnify the owner um, for damages caused by personal injury and property damage due to the uh, contractor's negligence. Contractors are responsible for site safety, so that provision is important. Um, the a negotiation point that Ken mentioned he'll always take out is that the standard AIA says you're also going to indemnify the architect and engineers uh, for that provision uh, that uh, many contractors don't like to agree to indemnify. They don't have you as a party. That the standard AIA includes architects and engineers as parties to be indemnified. Retainage, um, that's, you're going to hold back a little bit of each payment um, from the contractor to ensure completion. In Massachusetts, you can't be more than 5% um, under the Mass Retainage Act. Uh, the contractor's right to stop work going quickly. If you don't get paid, you don't, you get the right to stop work. Uh, termination for convenience and termination for cause. Cause is you're breaching the contract. Convenience is the owners, the circumstances have changed and the project's not going to be complete. Uh, Subcontractor supply agreements, the same general references. And then, um, you know, just look to your standard agreements and recognize what your uh, uh, clients need on your surrounding circumstances. Um, and thank you. Leah Rockwark is going to take over the next section. Sorry that I went a little over. Sorry, Leah. You're up, though. All right, I'm in. So thanks everybody for your patience. Can everyone hear me okay? So wanted to talk to folks today a little bit about what types of issues might arise during construction and how you can assist your clients during construction. And we are going to very rapidly, because we're uh, of limited time today, going to talk about reviewing claims issues, documenting claims issues, preparing claims, and retaining experts. And I think one of the things I'd like to do is provide you with uh, a couple of hypotheticals that I think will help you get a grasp of some of the issues and, and the provisions that we're talking about in my slides that are about to be presented to you. Uh, you will all be provided with copies of the presentations uh, and that way you won't have to worry about reading quickly because there's a lot of small text. But some of the things we're going to talk about in the context of claims and disputes are what is the definition of a claim, time limits, notice, continuing contract performance, and all of the other things that are enumerated in this slide for you today. We're going to have a brief discussion of each of them, hopefully time permitting. So again, what I'm going to do for the purposes of my discussion is refer to the document that Brian and Ken have both referred to and Gwen has alluded to. Uh, and I suspect that Chris may also allude to it, and that is the American Institute of Architects, A201, 2017 edition, which is the general conditions of the contract for construction. And that particular uh, provision 
discusses the definition of claims. And so what is a claim? A claim goes beyond what you might otherwise believe. And again, as to any contract that you have, that is the very first thing that you ought to be doing. Review the contract. If your client contacts you and says that they have an issue on a construction project, you need to see the contract or the contracts in question. Uh, a claim is a demand or assertion by one of the parties seeking as a matter of right payment of money. A change in the contract time, meaning the schedule for performance of the work, or other relief with respect to the terms of the contract. And as you can see, I've highlighted the last sentence here, which provides that section 15.1.1 does not require the owner to file a claim in order to impose liquidated damages in accordance with the contract documents. One thing to be aware of is anytime you see a term capitalized in the AIA, that is a defined term. So you should be looking at the definition section uh, and reviewing what that defined term is. So for example, contract documents you can see is capital C, capital D, do that. One of the things I'm going to do is limit my discussion today, number one, because of time and, and otherwise uh, because of the substance of the program to issues that might arise uh, regarding claims during construction and how you can assist your clients. There are other times, either pre-construction or post-construction, that issues may arise, and I'm, I'm not trying to suggest in any way, shape, or form that those are any less important than the, the ones that we're going to discuss today. And again, we have a limited time, so we're going to do a very high-level discussion, as Brian mentioned early on. Be aware, um, and let's actually, you know, let's talk about a hypothetical. So, for the first hypothetical, what I'd like to do is, is give you a fact scenario. And again, very brief. Uh, there is absolutely uh, any, any relationship or any similarity, I should say, to any uh, real persons, uh, projects, or other uh, entities or individuals is strictly coincidental. Um, assume for the sake of the, our discussion today that your client emails you and attaches a copy of a letter. Your client is an owner of a property or a project and they received a letter from the contractor. The letter from the contractor basically says, we, we have encountered during the course of our site work an underground obstruction. The underground obstruction is, consists of utilities and pipes and, and possibly electrical connections. We don't know if they're live, but we ran into them and they're gonna impact our work. And you have to start asking questions. You know, What does the letter say? What does the contract say? The contractor may very well include in that same letter, it's gonna impact our schedule, or it may impact our schedule. It may impact our, the, the amount of money it costs us to perform the work. So what I'm trying to do in the next series of slides that we're gonna move through very quickly due to time constraints is briefly suggest to you some of the provisions, and they're not exhaustive by any means, uh, that you should be looking at in order to make sure that you're aware of what your contract says. And every contract, again, is different. This is just the A201 general conditions under the AIA, uh, under the current form of the agreement, which may, by the way, also have been modified through negotiations. So again, you should not rely upon these uh, as being binding on your situation, but rather refer to the contract itself that is governing the project that, you're, that is at issue. So there are certain time limits on claims. Uh, there may be a waiver of certain causes of action uh, by virtue of the fact that you didn't timely comply with the requirements for the notice of claim. Uh, the notice of claim provision that you see before you is from section 15.1.3 of the AIA A201. 
and a claim. So for example, what this provision covers, there's 15.131 and 15.132, you can see that. Depending on when the discovery of the claim occurred, the notice requirements may vary. So you should familiarize yourself with those requirements. And as I said, you will get copies of these slides uh, and due to time constraints, I don't have op the opportunity to go through all of them in detail, but at least you have some sense of what these provisions provide. You should, if, if the notice requirements require you to provide notice of your claim within 21 days of the occurrence of a claim, make sure that your notice of claim is timely. You're gonna to wanna to have all of these discussions with your client as promptly as possible. You're also gonna to wanna to make sure that you've run conflicts as to any potentially responsible parties so that you can actually proceed with the analysis. Uh, the AIA standard form requires that the contractor pending resolution of any claim or final resolution of any claim that they are required to continue with their work under the contract and the owner at the same time is required to continuing making payments in accordance with the contract documents. That's not to say that the owner absolutely has to continue making all payments. You need to evaluate what the payment provisions say and what amounts the contractor is entitled to. There may be grounds for withholding some or a portion of any payment application request. Um, with regard to the, the making of a claim, uh, this section 15.1.42 provides that while that continuing contract performance is required, there may very well be an initial decision maker, and we'll talk about who that is. You can see, as again, it's a defined term, uh, who provides or makes a recommendation as to the adjustment uh, based on the claim for the contract sum and the contract time. Again, uh, both are defined terms. That in the uh, initial decision maker may or may not be the architect on the project. You need to familiarize yourself with what the contract says. Assuming you're using the AIA, oftentimes and increasingly, I'm seeing that the owners and, and even the contractors for that matter, uh, prefer to have someone other than the architect be the initial decision maker on the claim. So what is the contract that contractor asking for? You remember the brief hypothetical of facts that we talked about. The contractor runs into the underground obstructions. Are they looking for additional money? Are they looking for additional time? If they are, you need to make sure that you review the contract to see what requirements the contractor must comply with in order to establish a claim for additional costs. So as you can see, there's any number of other sections within the general conditions that the contractor has to comply with. That being said, there may be exceptions. For example, prior notice is not required for claims relating to an emergency endangering life or property arising under a particular provision of the contract. So again, familiarize yourself. You probably never thought after law school and your contracts course that you would need to depend so heavily on those skills. But I will assure you that as a construction lawyer, that is the one thing that you can absolutely assure yourself, you will be reviewing contracts, whether it's drafting them or, or litigating them. Claims for additional time, you have to make sure that you comply with the time requirements of the contract. Uh, if the contractor wants to make a claim for an increase in the contract time, uh, both Brian and Ken have talked about delays and, and also uh, changes to the contract and increases in the contract time, you've got to comply with the strict requirements of the contract and those in Massachusetts have been enforced and upheld. 
If there's a weather component to your claim, make sure that that is adequately documented if you're the contractor. Then again, if you're the owner, you're gonna to wanna to make sure has the contractor actually satisfied all of the requirements for compliance with the notice and claim provisions of the contract. I went a little too far. Need to go back. Sorry about that, folks. So Brian and, and Ken talked a little, I think it was Ken as well, but at least Brian spoke a bit about a uh, waiver of claims for consequential damages. Um, and so I won't bother to read all of the details of this particular provision, but as Brian pointed out, uh, the standard form of the AIA A201 includes a waiver of claims for consequential damages. Uh, and there is a different yet similar provision contained as Brian mentioned in the consensus docs. You need to make sure that you familiarize yourself with the contents of this provision. If you're no negotiating a contract on behalf of the owner or the contractor, uh, as, a, as a, an attorney who's represented a large amount of owners, I will tell you that uh, I find that the AIA provision relating to the waiver of consequential damages is not terribly well balanced, uh, depending on the subject matter of the project, because it may very well be that the risks to the owner of consequential damages and the downside to this mutual waiver may far outweigh those uh, that may apply to the contractor. So keep those things in mind, uh, depending on who the party is that you represent and make sure that there is either strict compliance if you're representing the contractor uh, and understand what the waiver is for consequential damages and also as the owner. We talked a little bit about the initial decision maker. I'm not going to read through all of these provisions because as you can see there, I have three slides that cover it, but this will give you a, a sense uh, for those of you who don't have access to the AIA software of what the responsibilities of an initial decision maker in the event of a claim actually has to do. There are time requirements, there are substantive requirements, uh, the architect, if they are the initial decision maker, may very well uh, ask for additional information in order to understand or better understand what is the actual substance of the claim. Moving on to the next slide. Uh, if the initial decision maker does request additional information, you should provide that in a timely manner. Uh, and you should, and if you can't provide it immediately, let the in initial decision maker know when you will provide it or state, we don't have any additional information to provide to you. Ultimately, uh, the initial decision maker, according to this particular provision of the contract 1525, is, is required to render an initial decision approving or rejecting the claim or indicating that they are unable to resolve the claim. For example, you may have a situation where the claim actually points the finger at the architect for including errors or failing to include uh, certain aspects of the underground uh, obstructions, for example, in the original plans and specifications. The architect may, if they are the initial decision maker by contract, they may say, I don't feel as though it's appropriate for me to render an initial decision on this claim. I'm going to recuse myself. That may be very well a scenario that arises under the situation that we gave hypothetically. Uh, additionally, uh, the initial decision maker is required to make the decision in writing, state the reasons for that decision and notify the parties 
and the architect if the architect is not serving as the initial decision maker. Of any contract, some change or contract time change. The other thing to keep in mind is oftentimes as construction attorneys, we end up getting a construction contract, but we've never seen the design contract um, when it comes to negotiating. The two documents have to be read in light of one another and they must be consistent. Oftentimes they're not, but ideally they will be. So for example, you might have all of these obligations of the initial decision maker. And if it is the default in the AIA of the architect as the initial decision maker, what if it doesn't, you know, the same provision or the same requirements don't, aren't included in the architect's contract? It may very well be, Brian alluded to basic versus additional services. You may very well find that the architect will be requesting additional services because it's not part of their basic services to deal with claims. I've got about five minutes left to my 20 minutes, so I wanna move along pretty quickly. Um, as I mentioned, there are not, there's a, a litany of information concerning the initial decision on the claim. Um, you should familiarize yourself, as I said, with the provisions of the contract. Uh, make sure that you comply with you know, who is the initial decision maker. Make sure you comply with any time requirements and any substantive requirements. And if you don't like the decision, once the architect or other initial decision maker renders its decision, then in fact, there is an opportunity under the standard form AIA to seek mediation. Just make sure you're familiarize yourself with your contract because the standard form AIA contract actually includes mediation as a condition precedent as to any, prior to any, uh, and it says it right here, um, prior to any binding dispute resolution, which may very well be by election of the parties at the time of the negotiation of the contract, either litigation or, or, or arbitration. But again, you've got to familiarize yourself with the contract because if a claim, is, if, if mediation, excuse me, is a condition precedent to binding dispute resolution, you're, you're going to get your, your complaint kicked out of court if you haven't satisfied the preconditions of mediation. That being said, the standard form AIA contract actually provides that what you can do is you can simultaneously file your litigation or arbitration, assuming, for example, you may have a, a tolling, uh, statute of limitations issues, excuse me, uh, you're going to want to do that. And then what you would do is you would stay those proceedings pending the outcome of the mediation. And again, it's incumbent upon the parties to mediate in good faith. Um, the AIA also has standard language with regard to arbitration. You're gonna to wanna to familiarize yourself with this. A lot of clients that I do work for as owners uh, do not prefer arbitration over the option of litigation should it become necessary. And there is something that is beyond the scope of our program as well that you may want to consider and certainly consult with anyone who's a seasoned construction lawyer if you have questions about it or someone, whether it's someone in your firm or anybody on this panel or someone else in the industry um, there are many of us out there, you know, there may be something called step negotiation that allows the parties to try to work out some resolution at the project level without first resorting to uh, protracted litigation or other dispute resolution uh, processes. One of the things I promised I would talk to you about also is um, documenting claims issues. You're gonna to have to familiarize yourself with the, with the key contract clauses. We talked a bit about notice, 
dispute section of the, of the contract, differing site conditions, delays, changes, audit rights, schedule. These are just some of the topics that may come into play. Um, what I'd like to do is maybe provide you with, for the purposes of this, and again, briefly, because I've, I've got, I'm almost out of time, I've got a couple minutes left. Um, I'll give you another hypothetical that might help you evaluate when you have these slides, um, some of the facts that may give rise and some of the issues you ought to be thinking about. It's really almost like issue spotting in, in law school. Um, so hypothetically speaking, your client contacts you and tells you that you have a, a facade failure on a stucco cladded building and it's prematurely failing. Uh, basically what you're gonna to wanna to do is some of the things you're gonna to need to do is investigate. What kind of experts do I need? Uh, you may need a, a stucco facade expert. You may need a claims consultant. You may need a, a building envelope consultant. Uh, evaluate all of these issues. How do you document that? You need to photograph it. What, do, what contract documents are out there? What correspondence is out there? Uh, what, project rec what other project records are out there? And Chris is going to get into some of these when he talks to you about some of the types of documentation that you're going to want to have as a consultant, as an owner, as a contractor. Uh, and as somebody who's a participant to the claims process. You know, is it a design issue? Is it a construction issue? What's going on? You have to think about spoliation. You may have to send out a letter and say, look, the conditions of this existing facility are changing. You're invited to come out here and do side-by-side -side testing. I want you to know that once we remove the stucco facade, if it's, you know, creating a danger to persons or property, that the conditions are not gonna be the same. And what essentially I call that is an anti-spoliation letter. What you're trying to do is stave off a motion down the road for someone to say, hey, listen, you destroyed evidence and I'm unable now because you did to defend myself against your claim that it was somehow a design issue or a construction issue or a combination thereof. So make sure you get those letters out uh, and, and invite somebody to do side-by-side -side testing. Uh, ask who, where, what, when, how, why, all of these things. You've got to evaluate what these issues are. Documenting is critical, and Chris is going to go into this, so I'm not going to belabor the point. You know, who initiated the claim? When, where did the claim or the dispute or other matter in question arise? What is the claim? And what are the con what does the contract say? What are the facts? Again, this slide, you can see there are a number of questions, and again, this is not by any means exhaustive but it'll give you a sense of the types of things, and Chris is gonna talk a lot about it, um, that you need to consider. From a contractor's perspective, at a minimum, this list here, beginning with executive summary and an introduction, is a non-exhaustive list of things that you have to minimally include in evaluating and submitting, preparing and submitting your claim. What do you need to think about when engaging and retaining experts? And this is my last slide because I want to turn it over to Chris and then Gwen also so they have sufficient time. What experts are needed? Uh, what, what kind, for example, you may need a structural engineer, you may need a claims consultant, you may need a scheduling consultant if there are delays. Is it going to be a consulting expert? Is it going to be a testifying expert? Those things make a difference because certain aspects of a consulting expert uh, or the testing ex testifying expert, excuse me, may very well be discoverable. You need to think about all these things. You need to conduct the appropriate conflicts analyses 
You need a written engagement letter with your expert or experts. What does that written engagement letter say? At a minimum, you're gonna to need to define the scope of the services of those respective experts. You're going to wanna to establish what the fees are, are uh, anything that might be an additional service, whether it's testifying or, or otherwise. Uh, what are the reimbursable co costs that are covered? Because I'll tell you right now that your client is gonna to wanna to know some sense of what can I expect to face in terms of costs. Who's gonna retain the expert? Take into account uh, how the expert's going to bill. Are they gonna bill through the law firm? Are they gonna be engaged by the law firm? And, that, and then the, con the client ultimately, assume for the sake of our discussion, is, is the owner. The owner may be responsible by the, uh, the engagement letter for payment, but the reports and the communications and the instructions may very well go through the attorney. You need to take into account, for example, things such as a privilege and work product issues, assuming they apply depending on the nature of your expert. Uh, keep in mind insurance considerations. Is it something that you wanna to do to have the uh, expert name as additional insureds, either the owner and or the law firm for all uh, types of, under all policies of insurance, excuse me, that may apply with the exception of say, and when would speak to this, I'm sure, professional liability and workers comp for which you cannot be an additional insured. So hopefully that gives you a broad brush sense of the types of things that you need to think about. I'm gonna turn it over to Chris. Thanks so much for your time. I wish everyone well and stay healthy, folks. Chris? I'm here and I think I have control, so there we go. Um, nice to meet everybody. Chris Sullivan with FDI Consulting. Um, uh, you know, I'm gonna to talk to you about the presentation of, of claims and responding to claims. This is me, obviously a little different with the hair, uh, et cetera, and, and of course, with, with the mask I have to wear everywhere now when I wanna to go to Lowe's or Home Depot and otherwise. Um, a little background about myself, Boston, born and bred, Northeastern University for, as a civil engineer, similar to Brian, and also um, University of Massachusetts for my MBA. Um, I've worked both before FTI and after, or, or with FTI, um, for all phases of what I'll call the construction life cycle. So I worked as an, an architecture firm in civil engineering for a little bit, um, worked as a contractor and, and as an owner, both prior to coming to FTI and at FTI, I've worked and represented um, all, all of those folks as well. So I think it gives a pretty interesting perspective on claims and how they're handled and viewed by the different parties, understanding we have attorneys represent all those people as well. So that's what I'm gonna focus on today. Um, defining a claim, you know, what I'm focusing on here is, is the claim scenario once it gets out of, or you know, when it's heading towards out of construction into litigation. That's my focus and how, how experts and myself work with attorneys to, um, to work through claims. So the part of this definition I, I, I've highlighted is, is not a definition that is in any contract. It's one that has been developed by me and my firm and others as we go along. But the main focus here is, is the damages that are caused by the failure of one party or another. So obviously if something happens in a contract, one person doesn't do their job or impacts another one, and there's a damage associated with that, that's what generally leads to a claim. And when we talk about claim items, it's two things we've heard about throughout this presentation. It's additional money and additional time. Both of those generally go along with each other. Of course, we'll see there's elements of claims that don't involve time, but involve money 
Um, but those are generally the two things that people look for when submitting a claim. The other thing I'll say about um, claims, once they, um, you know, once a project progresses and moves towards litigation or alternative dispute resolution is I think, as we heard about in the first few sections of this presentation is that there's a, obviously a real focus on the contract, whatever contract that may be. But as you move into litigation, and as Gwen will talk about in ADR and, and, and arbitration is that I think there becomes more of a balance between um, paper, such as the contract and the people that are involved with the project, because everybody has their own uh, inclination about how things went or should have gone. Everybody has their own interest in you know, what they're looking to get out of the claim. So I think while the contract, of course, is the guiding light for everything um, that goes along with the, with the project, um, people, fact witnesses, experts, other attorneys will certainly have their own interpretation of what happened and everything that goes along with the project. <clears throat> so there, in, in common types of construction and design claims, there's a whole host of them. I, I seem to run into a new one every week, month that I'm, I'm in this job, but these are kind of the main focuses or the main ones we see. Um, payment dispute is usually not uh, one that I deal with. That's typically pretty simple if someone's not getting paid, but experts get involved as the issues become more complicated. So things like delay, loss of productivity, acceleration, differing site conditions, you know, something that really requires independent look at what happened so that um, attorneys especially can understand what happened on a project. Um, delay is fairly simple. It's something was supposed to happen X amount of time. It took Y. Why did that happen? Who's responsible? How much money did that cause? Um, things like loss of productivity and acceleration can lead to delay uh, or maybe elements of delay, but are oftentimes um, independent of one each other. Loss of productivity is simply you, you were expecting to do something one way, something happens to you and you move slower. I have to mow the lawn later, so obviously my productivity will be down since it's 85 degrees today and not 65 like it's been the last few days. Um, acceleration is sort of the opposite of that. It's, it generally happens toward the end of a project when a, when, a, when a subcontractor or the like, usually electricians, painters, ever at the end of the project comes in, and when they thought and bid the job that they had a year or two years to do their work, they come in and say, well, you need to get it done in three months now. And of course there's time, uh, money and time associated with that um, as well. Owners and contractors generally, if they file claims against each other, have um, competing claims for delay and defective work and direct damages, et cetera. The one that I think if you're a person who represents owners needs to consider um, is termination clauses in your contract and how that would affect claims. Um, we talked about the AAA, they handle both termination for convenience and for cause in their own little ways, and I'm sure other people do, but there are damages straight out of the, straight out of the contract associated with each of those types of claims. And then the designer as well, errors and omissions, defective design, uh, and the big one I've seen lately is indemnification and challenges to that, meaning, um, you know, the, if the contractor sues the owner for what he thinks is an error on omission, the owner going back against the designer with contractor's damages to try to get recovery. So it's kind of a, a back and forth or the owner acts as an in-between to get damages back from one party or another. So there's obviously more types of claims, but those are the, um, those are the main ones that we see and deal with um, most of the time. So the key elements of a claim, I like to think of it as a, as, as a puzzle. So 
a successful claim in my mind will tell your story as a as in your client's story and then bolster it with all the necessary elements of a claim to get into one nice tidy persuasive package so the first piece um, is cause and effect and i think um, for both uh, we'll call it a fact witness or a project personnel or client staff as well as a hired expert this is really where you can get a lot of bang for your buck as an attorney um, it's telling your story about what impacted you, what was it, what were the events leading to it, and then what was the impact from that. If, if you can't land that plane and tell your story plainly and clearly and persuasively, uh, no one's really going to listen to it. So that's the first step is, is to lay out the facts and say, this is how we were hurt, and quite frankly, make it sound as bad as possible while still maintaining the facts behind it. Entitlement is something that uh, often gets passed off to the attorneys about what your contract says and, and um, you know, why, if you had this cause and effect impact, why you're entitled to money and time. It's a lot of things we talked about earlier today with different clauses in the contract, whether it be um, delay or change clauses, all that gets in, thrown into there. And then as well as case law and everything out there in that universe as well. Um, supporting evidence we'll talk about in a minute that's the one where um, it, it, it can be all over the place in some jobs you get mountains and boxes and in relativity or other e-discovery platforms millions of documents other times you're working with you know a hard copy of a superintendent's notebook and a project schedule that's written on a napkin so it's you know really understanding what you have and how you can use it um, and whatever you have, making sure it gets into your claim because that's really what's going to bolster that claim at the end of the day. And then the resulting piece is the damages. So once you put all the cause and effect and entitlement supporting evidence, you, would, you wouldn't be submitting a claim and filing a claim unless you thought there was something you, were, you needed to get out of it, whether it's time or money. So the quantification of those damages are equally as important. And, and the way I like to think about when attorneys and experts work together on developing a claim is that um, different pieces of this claim are better suited to one person or another. For instance, the entitlement would go to an attorney, the cause and effect in the persuasive writing might go to a claims analyst like myself and the damages, the supporting evidence would come from the client. So it's a really uh, important song and dance to make sure everybody's on the same page and that these puzzle pieces fit together and everybody knows the story and everybody is consistent with the story and everybody supports that story. So types of supporting evidence, we won't go through all of these. I, you know, I think there's ones that are um, more important than others when doing, when developing a claim. And, you know, it's, it's the contemporaneous documents that tell the day-to-day -day or month-to-month -month story. So that's things like daily reports or photos, um, monthly, weekly reports, meeting minutes, things that are saying what's going on day-to-day. -day and, and hopefully, and one thing I've said to you, I did a, a webinar on, um, on, attorneys assisting people through delay claims, clients through delay claims. One of the things I think you can do, and Leah touched on it when construction is ongoing, is to make sure that your clients are documenting everything that goes on at the site, because that's going to be the backbone for whatever claim they submit either contemporaneously or at the end of the day. Uh, and the other thing I'll say about the about supporting evidence from a litigator standpoint, I think that is that um, where, whereas when an expert comes in or, or you're trying to, you know, develop a pleading and you need some facts, the biggest thing I think you can help your case with is, is preserving documents in whatever form they come. 
you know, making sure that clients aren't running away with them or moving to job sites. I've been on numerous jobs where, you know, they, they throw the, the contents of the job trailer in, in, in a Connex box and, you know, they turn into dust. You know, it's just it, it, the best thing you can do is make sure people are documenting and then maintaining those documents whenever form they think best so that we can rely on them later on, both as experts and attorneys. Uh, types of damages. So we moved on from the supporting evidence to now we're saying, okay, we have this cause and effect. We have this nice tiny claim. Well, what 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 happened? You know, why are we seeking damages, and what are those damages? So, the, to me, the easiest to understand is direct damages. It's those damages that are one to one with what you're saying. The, the simplest thing I can think of is is rework. So, if an owner has a claim against a contractor because they did their work incorrectly and they have to go back to repair that work. Certain contracts will say how that's handled, but if that rework, you know, is, is if the owner has to perform that work, there's argument that you can back charge that essentially to a client and that's a direct damage. It's, it's, it's a damage for putting work in place and correcting that work. Chris, before you move on to the next topic, um, this is Leah. You've talked a lot about you know, the elements of a claim and things that you want to see, how, how early in the claims process do you as an expert get involved or does that vary by claim? Yeah, it, it, it varies. And I have a slide in here that I think we'll get to that, that lays kind of the pros and cons of when we get late, you know, get involved. Um, there's been times for singular claims, you know, and, and, and I want to back up and make sure people understand that when I say claim, a claim can be a, a singular change order on a job, something for a thousand, two thousand dollars that you're sliding across the table for approval. That's a claim, or it can be what we mostly think of, of litigated claims, which are high dollar value, um, you know, big loss of money or time claims that happen at the end of the project. So, Leah, we've seen bigger value change orders early on in a job, or even at the value engineering phase when they're trying to figure out, you know, who owns what scope that we get involved that early. Most of the time I would say it's later on in the job when we're either focusing on a mediation or going into litigation. And I'll, and I'll, I'll lay out the pros and cons of that too. Great, thanks Chris. And when you refer to a change order, you're including in that, uh, I assume when it's not agreed to by the owner, you're referring to the change request process. So it might be that, for example, the contractor has a change request, maybe the owner agrees with it, maybe they don't. And if they don't agree with it, then it becomes a claim. Is that fair to say? Yeah, exactly. And, and of course, the claim capital C in a contract is handled a certain way. The way I think about it is, is a claim, um, from my point of view, is anytime someone's asking, and the way I'm presenting this is anytime someone's asking for time or money on a contract, and whether or not it becomes a, that capital C claim in accordance with the contract is something that, um, you know, happens later on. So, yeah, I, I know what you're saying, Lee. It makes sense. So I won't get into this. I put this in here. It's, it's a lot of information. I think it's something useful for attorneys and litigators to know about excusable versus non-excusable delay and who is entitled to what kind of damages on that. Um, it's, it's a slide that's there for you to look at when you see it, um, but it's a topic, again, you could talk a lot about. Big point being that when someone makes a claim, a contractor generally, um, there, there's processes and procedures in place to understand if a contractor should get time and money or just time or nothing at all for that delay. And that's where this argument of excusable and non-excusable delay comes in. 
We talked about notice and timing with the AIA, so I'll skip over this. I think the only thing I'll mention is that um, a lot of times people focus on notice and timing um, related to the submission of claims, but I think it's equally important for an attorney to understand that there's also response um, notices and, and, your, and your obligations under the contract to responding to claims in a lot of contracts. So the AIA for notice of claims is talking about sending a claim across the table from a contractor to an owner. But a lot of times the owner needs to re, uh, reply and, and abide by the notice as well in the contract. When hiring an expert, says hiring someone like me, I do delay damages claims. There's a whole host of experts that I've listed here, standard of care, estimating, project management, design, defect engineers. Um, there's a lot of people who know a lot about a lot of stuff in the world who um, offer their expertise on projects. So when you're evaluating a claim, um, you know, think about what would help your case and, and what kind of expert would help you explain the claim best. Um, you know, I think Leah talked about the things to consider, so I'll talk about why you would hire an expert or why I think experts are so prevalent in construction. Is one, you have expertise. It's a very specific thing we're talking about um, with construction. Uh, independent ass assessments, a lot of times, especially on trouble projects, you see a lot of staff leaving or the documentation is not great. Or when there's a troubled project, people have their opinions about who's responsible. So I think the independent assessment as well is an important um, piece of it. And then uh, to Leah's point, I'll go through this quickly, when to hire an expert. So the first one is the first sign of trouble on a project, projects going south. The pros is that you have an expert there to help with your claim development issue spot. It's nice, a lot of attorneys like having that, that partner in crime to go through the, the process with. The con is that it may affect the use as a testifying expert. I've, I've been personally affected by this where a client brings me in to do some schedule analysis to help turn around their project. Um, would love to use me as a testifying expert, but because I'm, you know, for lack of a better word, tainted by helping the project to a successful completion, you might not want to use that same person later on. It's, it, it affects the independence of it. Helping with ADR, that Glenn, uh, Gwen will talk about. Um, the con here, again, you're getting involved earlier. The, the, the con that I see is that clients see, tend to see this as a wasted cost if mediation is unsuccessful. So be considerate of that. Know what the pros and cons of helping that earlier on. And, and the one we see most typically is getting involved after complaints have been filed. Um, we need an expert report, something, you know, an expert opinion to say what they think happened in the project. That tends to be the most cost effective. You're involved later in the game. You're not tainted with any early involvement. Um, the only thing that experts would say is that you're often, you know, because you're trying to cut costs or be effective with your costs, you're, you're putting the expert in a tighter bind in terms of deadlines and late case evaluation. Um, so slides will be there for everybody. Thanks for the time in terms of going over this. I'll turn it over to um, Gwen now to go through the ADR, the next step in the process. All right, here we go. I've got control. Uh, I'm Gwen Weisberg. I'm at a partner with uh, Donovan Hatem in Boston. Uh, and uh, I represent, at this point, pretty much solely design professionals, architects and engineers. So the, um, my topic today is litigation or alternative dispute resolution, uh, pros and cons. 
And um, we'll also talk a little bit about litigation. We're running a little bit uh, behind here, so um, I'm going to kind of move forward as uh, quickly as I can. Um, first place is mediation. Yes, in all instances, whether your ultimate dispute resolution under your contract is arbitration or litigation. Uh, I would say somewhere between 95 and 98% of my cases, uh, very large ones in the billions and smaller ones uh, tend to settle at mediation. So uh, I think it's an extremely important step. Uh, litigation versus arbitration, we'll get into that a little bit. Um, and it really just does depend on the type of claim and there are other factors as well. Uh, mediation. Uh, is basically negotiation that's guided by someone who is a professional, uh, who is neutral. It's generally non-binding. Whoops, whipped on here. Non-binding, it's voluntary, um, and it tends to be quite cost-effective. Uh, the costs of mediators range um, from a couple of hundred dollars an hour to $18,000 a day. Uh, it depends on the type of uh, complexity of the matter, with the, the type of the dispute how many parties are involved, uh, and uh, ultimate impact of, of a uh, precedential impact of whatever you're uh, negotiating. Um, mediations used when parties reach an impasse in their informal negotiations. Uh, it can be used in any type of dispute, contractual disputes, employment uh, disputes. Uh, it can even be used for personal injury matters. Um, we have several construction-based personal injury matters in, in, in the office right now. Um, it's also available for both litigation and arbitration. Um, you have to really make a determination as to whether a matter is right for mediation. I think in most instances it is. I think the thing that you really have to consider more is when you actually mediate and whether the matter is right for mediation. Um, mediation is, uh, it, it's applicable to uh, whether there are issues of fact, whether there are legal defenses, um, whether the law is settled or unsettled. Um, it's a little bit easier when the law is actually settled because a party has an opportunity to, uh, to assert its position based on precedent. Um, you can get a global or a partial resolution. Uh, if, you can, uh, if you've got an extraordinarily complex matter, you might want to mediate uh, the liability issues first and then you can have additional discovery beyond that to determine allocation of that liability and then return to mediation at a later date. Um, I'm used to dealing with mediations with in excess of five to 10 parties. Sometimes we'll have 20 parties. I had one matter we mediated that had probably close to 40. Uh, mediation is effective uh, regardless of the size of the, of, the, of the matter and the number of parties. I tend to um, uh, uh, stay away from piecemeal mediation, uh, although you can specifically isolate a particular topic uh, and put it behind you and then move forward with uh, aspects of a claim that are more difficult uh, to resolve. Um, you have to have good faith going into a mediation. Both parties have to intend to uh, engage in a productive good faith mediation. If a party is just running into mediation because it's a condition precedent to either arbitration or litigation, uh, it tends not to be productive. Um, and very often, um, as Chris was saying, there are uh, 
a lot of uh, contracts have mandatory mediation provisions in them. And uh, I usually, when I do contract reviews, I try to incorporate mandatory mediation provisions. I think it enables uh, all parties an opportunity to step back, hear the other party's perspective, and uh, engage in, in what I think are, are effective discussions during the course of a mediation. There are various times you can mediate. Um, you can mediate uh, very early in, in the game. Whoops, that's bizarre. Skipping ahead. Okay. Um, you can mediate uh, at any point. What you need is a really good understanding of your claim, uh, a, a pretty good understanding of what your opposing party's defenses to your claim are. Um, but you don't have to know everything about a claim. In fact, um, when I have been pushed into an early mediation, and keep in mind mediation is uh, voluntary, but sometimes it helps to go to an early mediation. Uh, it can be used as a, a method of discovery as well. You get a little bit more information about somebody's claim if you're, if you're, if you're kind of pushed into an earlier mediation. Um, it helps, um, but it's not necessary to have expert opinions when you go into mediation. Um, one of the things Chris mentioned was whether or not you bring a mediate, uh, an expert into mediation. Um, I have done it both ways. Um, more frequently, um, I'll have an expert sitting on the sidelines if we're mediating a good way into the case. Um, I also had a very early mediation where I had a scheduling expert who was instrumental in assisting us in getting the claim settled because it was a very early stage claim before a shovel was in the ground um, in my instance, the contractor was alleging that there were significant delays already to its schedule. We were able to demonstrate that the delays were not as impactful, uh, and we were able to reach a reasonable settlement of the claims. Gwen, what do you do when, you're, when you have a, a client or you hear a party say something like, I don't want to show all my cards in mediation now because they're just going to find excuses um, uh, and uh, I want to save my I want to save my best arguments for litigation. Depends on where you are at the stage of of, uh, of litigation when you mediate. Uh, I I get that a lot, and I understand that position. Uh, if you're in the early stages of mediation, you really haven't even had an opportunity to flesh out your either your claim or your defenses. Um, as Leah pointed out, you know, there may be reasons why you push into a claim really quickly because you've got a statute of limitations that you're facing. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, so it depends on how far you are into it. If you are mediating after discovery is closed, then for all intents and purposes, the other party already knows what your, your defenses are and knows what the elements of your claim are. So at that stage, uh, you may be in a much better position to put it all out on the table and try and explain your position in the most detailed way you can and have the mediator help you facilitate uh, a, a settlement of the claim. The mediator is there to uh, work through the issues with you, try and explain them in, a, uh, in an understandable, articulate fashion and try and help you convince the other side uh, that you know, your position is a, is a better position. A mediator is neutral. But the mediator uh, relates information that, that he or she obtains from the various parties. And the, the goal is to have the mediator help you lay everything on the table that you have um, that will enable the mediator, whose goal 
is to reach a settlement for the parties. Um, the mediator doesn't have a dog in, 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 you know, in the fight. Uh, the mediator is not trying to uh, facilitate the settlement on behalf of one party over the other. Um, but there are instances which you really want to lay all your cards on the table. If you've got an early mediation, um, the, you know, my position is I would not do so. Uh, because you haven't even had an opportunity to formulate and finalize your claims or your defenses at that point. Um, another, another reason uh, for mediation um, is it's quite cost effective compared to litigation and arbitration. Um, as I mentioned, we mediate um, and settle probably somewhere between 95 and 97 or 98 percent of our cases. Um, mediation is the cost of the day or two days uh, for the mediation itself. It's obviously a lot of preparation going into a mediation, but very, in, in many instances, it's the same preparation that you're going to need for your case, no matter whether you litigate or you arbitrate. Um, you're just going to put it together in a very cogent package uh, to enable you to proceed with the, the, the negotiations during the course of the mediation. Um, it also aids in maintaining the parties' relationships because parties who are able to mediate a settlement prior to going to arbitration or, or litigation um, may be more amenable to working together later because they have an opportunity to see the other parties' positions and rationales for the positions that the parties are taking. Uh, and there also may be some benefit um, in the mediation resolution. It may not just be a financial resolution. It might be that the parties agree to work together or partner in other, other projects. So it could be some sort of like an in-kind resolution of the party's uh, dispute. And uh, I've had that happen in, in multiple instances. And the parties have been able to continue their relationship for years to come as a result of that. It's much less adversarial. Uh, it's confidential. Um, and it, it also, like arbitration to some extent, assists in allowing the parties to maintain their reputations because it is not something that's going to be disclosed to the public. Um, and as I said, you can use it, at, it to some extent as a, a bit of a discovery tool. You learn a little bit more about the opposing party, not just its position about what the nature of the party is, um, whether the party is going to be obstreperous, whether the party is going to be an amicable uh, partner going forward in a project if you're somewhere in the middle of the project when you have mediation. Um, it also teaches you a little bit about the other party's counsel too and how aggressive um, or how um, relatable the counsel might be and uh, in, in favor of assisting the parties in resolving the claim as opposed to just battling each other. Oh. Ooh, it's driving me crazy. Um, as I said, the, um, the benefit of a neutral evaluation and bringing all the parties who are involved in the dispute together it is very helpful, especially if you've got uh, a case where the, the primary parties that have been going at each other are the attorneys. And the principles for the parties are pretty much left out of the loop, and they may not even know half of what's been going on. But if you've got a mediation and the uh, principles of the parties have an opportunity to hear each other's positions, uh, those principles may be in more of a, a, a position to try and resolve the claim because they have different interests than the attorneys do for all intents and purposes. They may, as I said earlier, have an interest in trying to work together to uh, partner in other projects. Um, you know, 
by the same token, they may also hate each other's guts. And that's something that comes out during mediation too. Uh, but more likely uh, than not, uh, parties will reach a resolution, whether it's during the course of the mediation or uh, after the mediation. And I'd say probably 75% of my uh, claims that I mediate uh, are resolved within a week to two weeks after the mediation, either through the assistance of the mediator or the parties have developed a better relationship as a result of the mediation and continue informal negotiations. Uh, there's an opportunity to uh, get a better feel for what your risks are if you proceed to um, ultimate uh, dispute resolution by trial or arbitration. Um, you can mitigate your exposure. Um, and as I said, there are opportunities for creative resolutions. I had a mediation where we developed a path of communications for the rest of the two-year project that the parties were facing. Uh, they developed a, you know, I think, I don't remember whether it was Chris or whether it was Leigh who mentioned a stepped negotiation process. That's what they developed is a stepped communication process at the very outset of this project, used it throughout the project, and didn't have any significant claims going forward because they figured out how to, how to talk. And that was something that we developed as part of the mediation resolution. Um, there can be uh, inappropriate or injudicious use of mediation. As I mentioned, um, because there is a potential mandatory mediation provision in, in, in an agreement and somebody is running up against a statute of limitations, um, the other party may uh, demand mediation that the parties proceed to it when um, they have absolutely no intention whatsoever of using it productively to actually settle the claim, they're just going to sit there like a, you know, a potted palm in the course of the mediation, not say a word and not engage in good faith to try and resolve it. They're doing it because they have no choice to get to litigation. And that happens and sometimes there's nothing you can do about it. Um, but you can advise the mediator uh, the circumstances and see if you can seek the mediator's guidance and assistance during the course of the mediation to try and make it more productive. Um, mediations, um, if it's early enough, may establish a floor for future negotiations. You want to be very careful in, in tendering offers and tendering demands to the opposing parties. Um, you do not want to um, say, well, I'm going to, you know, my, my bottom line is, you know, $20,000. $20, when you know you you know that this claim could be settled for less well if you've already put that number out there then you're kind of locked into it so you want to be careful about how you negotiate and what you tell a mediator you can create a bad impression like i said you know the the you may you may find out that the principal of of a corporation is in a mediation for nothing but you know expecting the other party to write a check that happened to me um, I got through three quarters of the mediation. Uh, we were putting our case out there. We had supporting documentation. We had good law. We had contract documents. Everything supported my designer's position. And the, um, the, the owner who was wearing two hats as the contractor and as the, as the developer um, basically said, I don't want anything but my demand. And unless you write a check, we might as well just close down the proceedings today. And we ended up doing that. He wasn't willing to listen to anything that anybody had to say. That's not a good basis for a mediation. Um, preparation is probably the most important thing in a mediation. Uh, if you do not prepare adequately for a mediation, you're wasting your time, the mediators and the opposing counsels, and you're going to create a really bad impression. So you need to make sure that you've prepared yourself really well for it. 
Um, I, as far as I'm concerned, uh, you have to have a well-drafted mediation statement and very well-supported position. Um, I bring tremendous number of documents um, to the mediation, um, and I've also prepared the mediator with substantial support so the mediator can do his or her job as well. Um, I hate having what, what uh, my partner calls is a poll tax uh, going into a mediation or, for example, a condition that unless you're willing to start the negotiations at a million dollars, we're not willing to proceed with mediation. Um, I don't think it benefits anybody. Uh, make sure everybody who has the authority to settle is present. Um, if there are any coverage issues out there um, that you are aware of, try and get those resolved beforehand so that you're not, you don't spend the entire time dealing with insurance uh, coverage uh, counsel. Um, Gwen, said, yeah. Gwen, quick question. You mentioned the decision makers being in the room. We get, I, I see a lot of times where the, where the design professional will say, uh, our adjuster is going to attend by, by remote. What's your view of that? Um, I, I would prefer to have somebody in the room um, with, with settlement authority. Um, I often go as, you know, as, as defense counsel for the design professionals, I have already received what I know from the from the design from the adjuster's position is the the final number that the adjuster is willing to go for, um, but you never know what's going to happen during the course of a mediation. There may be facts that arise that you weren't aware of before. There may be something to change your mind. I always have the adjuster's um, you know number available so that I can always call explain any any developments that have occurred during mediation. Um, and, and, you know, if, if I can't get additional money then, then, you know, we, we push the, the, the negotiations over, as I mentioned, we don't always settle that day, but it happens, it happens a lot. Um, and it, it, it's frustrating because I often see that on the CGL side as well. Gwen, do you envision that that may change somewhat and that more participants will participate remotely, uh, post COVID-19? Absolutely. Uh, we're, we've got several mediations uh, already that are, are by, um, you know, it, it, virtual mediations. I'm scheduling one next week um, to take place in the next couple of weeks remotely. Uh, two of my partners just participated in virtual mediations. It's happening a tremendous amount of the time. Uh, and I don't think that's going to change. I think it's just going to be the trend, um, which isn't necessarily a bad thing. I think people just need to get used to um, the technology. Um, because there are ways to break people out into separate breakout rooms so you can have confidential discussions, which are key to mediation during the course of the day. Um, but I think it's just a trend that's going to con continue as we proceed. Um, with respect to uh, people with uh, authority, I've had mediators uh, in their mediation uh, agreements that all parties have to sign before the mediation starts that says, uh, that they will have someone with authority in the room. And it also depends on the state too. For example, Florida requires insurance uh, adjusters uh, to appear at mediation unless all parties agree that they do not have to. So it's a statute in Florida. Um, Selection of a mediator, extraordinarily important. Um, you really need to decide whether you want a lawyer or a retired judge. A retired judge is not necessarily um, the right person for the job. Uh, a judge is used to making decisions. You want someone who's neutral, who's going to be able to facilitate discussions and negotiations. 
Sometimes it's helpful, sometimes it's not. Um, I have not had a lot of success with retired judges, um, but um, that's changing. Um, uh, I have had several judges recently who, um, who actually have done a, a terrific job. Um, we uh, are working with one right now and it's been a, a terrific process. So it really depends on what you're looking for and what type of party is on the other side. Um, whether it's a lawyer or a full-time mediator, it depends to a large, to a large degree on the type of experience that the person has. And that just goes for the judges as well. If you've got a judge who's had a, a, a general docket, that might be very helpful because they might have, the, the, the judge might have a very different perspective uh, from a very broad spectrum of issues that the judge has dealt with. Um, the same thing goes for a lawyer. Um, you know, in the construction field, I tend to um, prefer a full-time mediator um, or uh, someone who I know has extreme experience in construction uh, matters. Um, if someone has been a construction litigator, someone has uh, handled construction cases from both sides, um, I think that's extraordinarily helpful. It just really depends on what you're looking for. And one thing you can do is you can talk to the mediators in advance. You can talk to people, tell them what the general um, uh, underpinnings of your claim are. And, you know, talking to them, you can get a feel for how they mediate. So I've worked with lawyers um, and I've worked successfully with lawyers. I've worked very successfully with full-time mediators. Um, I've mediated, I don't even know how many cases at this point, well, well over a hundred. Um, and I've, I've had mediators of all different, from, from all different genres. Um, and it just depends on the type of, of um, case that you're working for or working on. Um, but the person really does need to have experience um, in your area. Um, Pre-mediation, private ex parte sessions, as far as I'm concerned, they're absolutely necessary. Um, the ex parte sessions give uh, the mediator an opportunity to hear each side's session unvarnished or at each side's position unvarnished. Uh, mediators can also assist you if you're having trouble getting documentation that you need um, from a claimant or that, you know, that the position of a, of a design professional is reliant upon specific um, uh, design documentation or project documentation than an owner, owner may not have. So it's really helpful because the, uh, the mediator has in, in many instances provided me the information I need to better prepare for mediation. Uh, mediation, um, you don't get a second chance. Um, it's, uh, as, as another one of my partners said, it's like live television. Um, you really need to know what you're doing when you get in there. You need to have prepared with your clients you need to decide who's going to take what role. Uh, you need to decide who's going to provide an overview of the claim. Um, in most instances, um, I let the, the clients uh, respond to the questions from the mediator. If the, the client wants my assistance with respect to a legal position, uh, I'm there to provide it. I don't leave my client alone. But with respect to the facts underlying the, the claims, I let my clients do a lot of the talking because I think it's more persuasive that way. Um, they may be, my clients tend to be very vested in the particular projects and their positions. And I think that's helpful. Uh, I don't let them run rampant, but uh, I think it's, it's really important that the mediator hears directly from, 
uh, from the clients. Mediation position papers, as I mentioned earlier, are very, very important. Uh, it gives you an opportunity to put your claim in the best light and to provide whatever documentation you have um, to present to support your position. So they're important. Um, I do a lot of mediation PowerPoints. I think they're very important as well. Um, I think it gives an overview to the mediator, but also to the other side as to what are the key aspects of your claim or your defense. Uh, so I think that's very helpful. Um, some mediators don't like overviews um, or, or opening sessions. Um, I think if they're kept to a minimum and keep, keep it to the highlights of each party's position, I think they're helpful. Um, I, I have been in some uh, opening sessions that have lasted an entire day. It was a waste of everybody's time and uh, I don't think anything was accomplished. Uh, again, avoid surprise and embarrassment. Make sure that you and your client discuss everything before you go into a mediation. Um, you don't want to hear about a, a, a particularly uh, bad fact while you're sitting there with the mediator. You want to make sure you know everything about your case. Usually when we go into mediation, uh, we've already done at least a preliminary evaluation of our client's exposure. Um, and we can have a better idea of what we think the case is worth uh, for, for purposes of settlement. Um, as I stated earlier, um, we have settlement authority going in. We wouldn't mediate without it, uh, unless, of course, we're in a position where it's extraordinarily early and we're using it as a discovery tool because no one has provided a support for the claims. Um, we do appoint a lead negotiator. It's usually uh, me uh, if I'm going in as the uh, attorney for the party. Um, and if I am in as a um, as associate defense counsel, uh, I work together with the defense counsel and we decide uh, who is going to be speaking with the mediator. The most important thing is it's not just don't let greed rule the day, also don't let the principle of the thing rule the day. Um, the parties should be there with the intention to try and reach a, reach a resolution of the claim uh, and, and not let their you know, personal feelings uh, get in the way of, of trying to put this, as I tell my clients, put this project that's been problematic in your rear view mirror and move on to uh, projects that are going to be revenue producing that you want to work on in the future. And, you know, they get the point. Um, it, the goal is to do what you love, which is creating things for design professionals. And you want to be able to work with your clients uh, on future projects and doing so. So the, the, the more um, the, the, the more you um, listen to the other party's side, um, I think on coming from whether it's an owner or a contractor or a developer on the other side and the design professional, I think, I think both parties have an opportunity to really hear carefully what each side is trying to present. And I think that really does help during the course of the mediation. Um, again, just be professional, um, make sure that you're, you're well-versed in your positions, that you can be firm, um, and you can be very uh, articulate in the way you present your position. Um, as I said, I've had experts at mediation, I've had them on the phone, um, and uh, again, it also depends on what stage of the claim you're, um, you're mediating. Don't think out loud in front of the mediator. Um, he or she is not your ally. He or she is trying to get the case settled. So make sure that you uh, are very careful in what you say in front of the mediator. 
control your reactions to not only the mediator, but also to the other party's positions. Um, you don't want to look aggravated in an opening session, and you also don't want to be sitting there uh, rolling your eyes or, or saying, oh my gosh, I just learned something new and that's going to kill my case. You don't want to do all that. Just, you know, keep a straight face. Be very careful when you're in bathrooms or public areas. Um, I've often gone into a, a lady's room and the mediator is in there or the opposing party is. Just be really careful and keep your mouth shut when you're in an open area. Uh, you don't want to take a chance at, um, at, at having any kind of a negative impact on your client's position. Uh, don't leave the mediation till an agreement is executed if, if you've reached a settlement uh, or terms in principle. Um, there are several states that require executed agreements. It doesn't have to be the full-fledged agreement, but it has to be uh, key terms uh, of the agreement. And uh, for example, New Jersey requires that because apparently the New, Jer New Jersey courts have had a lot of cases where uh, parties have reached agreement and then the next day a party has reneged. So in a way to, uh, to cut that off at the pass, uh, New Jersey now has a statute uh, that all uh, parties who reach, who reach an agreement at, at uh, mediation must execute a mediation agreement. Um, and as I said earlier, if a case doesn't settle at mediation, the mediation process can continue uh, with or without the mediator's assistance thereafter. I had one case settle 18 months later, it was a little bit much, um, but it was with the municipality and the municipality was, was dealing with other issues that were unrelated to the, to the claim. Um, very often, however, um, I'll go into a mediation with a draft settlement agreement on my computer and uh, by the end of the day, um, I'll be working with parties to resolve it and to enter into the agreement. So it, it really depends on the parties and the dispute at, at issue. Um, just to recap, any, any, any mediator um, worth his or her salt, who has a good track record, uh, who understands the issues generally, who can work with the parties um, would be a good choice. Um, whether it's a retired judge, whether it's a lawyer, whether it's, uh, it, it's, it's um, a professional mediator, um, it really doesn't make a difference as long as the parties are comfortable with the entity uh, and feel that they can work with that, with that mediator to, uh, to resolve the issues. And, uh, litigation versus arbitration. Um, they work for various reasons. Neither one is, is the best choice. Um, factors to consider, type of dispute, complexity, all of these factors are important. Jury trial versus a bench trial, uh, whether there are appellate rights or, or they're not. Um, and also parties' financial resources and, and, and contract terms are also important. Uh, the type of complexity of the type and complexity of the dispute, who's going to be their trier of fact, size and nature of the damages, who is more likely to understand the issues, um, and who is more likely, and this is incredibly important, um, who's more likely to actually keep listening past the first 10 minutes in a construction dispute. They're extremely complex, um, and you, you might have a judge who's, doing, who's sitting as a, you know, a, a judge as the trier of fact. You might have a jury. Uh, it doesn't make a difference who it is. Um, a lot of it is how you present it. Um, it's kind of hard to present a dry construction case in a way that's going to keep people entertained. Um, but you, you have to consider that as well when you're determining whether to have an arbitration or a, uh, a trial. 
length of the proceeding. Um, I had a, an arbitration go 80 days. Um, I've had construction cases um, settle in, or not settle, but um, go to verdict um, and or a, uh, a, a decision by the court uh, within a week to 10 days. It really just depends on the case itself. Um, there's no benefit to arbitration or litigation with respect to the time it'll take. Um, the cost, however, is a different story. Um, if you have a, a matter that's usually about a million over, you're going to have, want to have a three-party or a three-panel uh, panel person or person panel for an arbitration, and you're going to have to pay each arbitrator uh, an hourly wage or an hourly rate, um, and that's going to be for hearings, for the arbitration hearing itself, um, motions, uh, whatever um, pre-trial or pre-hearing um, proceedings that occur. So you have to take into consideration that, that cost. Uh, if you're trying a case, uh, you have a, 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 a fee for filing a complaint, or in some instances also a counterclaim, and then you're going to have a jury fee. Um, beyond that, those are your um, only fees in, other than your attorneys. So there are costs associated with that. Um, for all intents and purposes, judges will enforce contracts and will, will enforce the law. Um, they'll render verdicts based on applicability of law to facts. Arbitrators are not required to do that. Arbitrators don't have to follow anything other than the party's arbitration uh, provision and what their arbitration agreement says. Um, the arbitrators apply their own uh, judgment uh, to a dispute, and um, but they, as I said, they do have to adhere to the arbitration clauses. But if you have an arbitration, um, an arbitrator may not apply um, the statutes of limitation or statutes of repose. Um, I had a party of claimant tell me that um, he did not um, he did not adhere to the statute of limitations, which his client's claim had um, had bypassed, uh, and that from his perspective, he could have brought that claim a hundred years from the completion, substantial completion of the project, and it would just be fine. Um, so be, be very careful. If you do uh, arbitrate a case, make sure that you have something in your arbitration agreement that says that the arbitrators have to follow um, the state law that's applicable to the contract, uh, including but not limited to statutes of repose and statutes of, uh, of limitation. Um, whoops, almost. Um, appellate rights. Um, there are no appellate rights in arbitration, but there are in uh, litigation. Um, at the end of an arbitration, uh, the parties will uh, move to confirm uh, the arbitration award in a court, but that's the only reason they would end up seeing um, a judge. Uh, litigation, a uh, party has the right to appeal to the next appellate level um, and to continue its appeal until it's no longer applicable or, or viable. So that's something else that you might want to consider when you're choosing arbitration versus litigation. And I think that's the end of my presentation. It is. Yeah. So um, we've gone over. We appreciate all, most of you all stayed with us. I know Dan is on the line and he stayed over his time too. So we're appreciative of him and the BBA, but we appreciate all the attendees. Um, we don't have any questions in the queue. So, and we have gone over. I don't know whether, uh, Dan, you want to close things out and, um, it, you know, certainly on my sides, you can certainly reach out to me, um, uh, you know, 
Google Brian or Rod Dana by email. I'll have a call or chat. I'm happy to answer any questions. And, um, and uh, thank you for all uh, attending.